Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org. Peace be with you. Okay, so we've been going through the book of Joshua, so we're going to turn to Joshua 7. Joshua 7. I've got quite a bit of text to read here. Uh, We're going to read 1 through 15, Joshua 7, 1 through 15. So take a deep breath um, as we enter in and kind of just settle our minds a bit to hear the word this morning. If, if, you, if you're jumping in mid-series or something like that, we, we, we covered Joshua 6 last week, which is the famous Battle of Jericho, big victory. The walls came tumbling down. It was great. And then things take a, a very hard left turn here. So um, let's pick up and, and read it. We're going to read all the way to 15. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, um, go, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out, i.e., and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack. I do not make the whole people toil up there, for they're few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sherbarim and struck them at the, at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O oh Lord God, why have you brought us this... This people over the Jordan at all to give us the, into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. And they'll surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. 
and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Did you have your coffee this morning? There's a lot I know. What do we do with that? When, when I looked at the schedule, I thought, why didn't I schedule a fill-in for this week? Um, those of you who had a childhood in the 70s, 80s, or early 90s, you probably remember the ABC um, film anthology after-school special. Anyone? It aired after school, <laughs> weekdays. I, I watched uh, a, a clip of one uh, this week just to take a trip down memory lane. The episode was called, quote, Portraits of a Teenage Shoplifter. You, you, if you're not familiar with the show, the, the, the short film series, you, you probably can quickly grasp the premise and the goal of the series, being an after-school special. It was meant to address sensitive or even controversial topics that teens might or probably need to process. Oprah did some of these episodes. That's a pretty big deal. And the, 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 this particular episode, Portraits of a Teenage Shoplifter, was about this perfectly normal teenage girl wrestling with her identity and her image and makeup and clothing and trying to impress her at that time boyfriend. And um, so she begins this slowly, gradually, this process of getting comfortable shoplifting. And it just keeps going and getting worse and worse. I'll spare you the details of the rather boring uh, film, but the reality is that, the, that literally the last scene of this episode is her. You know, she's been caught. She's thrown in jail, this dark, dingy jail, and she's just weeping with her stolen makeup streaming down her face. <laughs> and that's it. And then it's like the credits roll, you know? Uh, I chuckled a bit, as you just did, but clearly back then the intended effect was to strike fear in teenagers, so thereby to curb their behavior. Now, the reason why I tell you that little story is because the, the human being's inability to curb our behavior towards good is a topic that the Bible, the Bible seems particularly interested in addressing a lot. We're just not very good at curbing our behavior towards good. For every successful moment um, within the Bible, and there are great occurrences of people doing wonderful things, but for every successful moment, there are far greater occurrences of people being spiteful, violent, greedy, uh, prideful, obtuse, you name it. Any person <laughs> feeling like a schmuck because you have failed can turn just about anywhere in the Bible and find good company. It's full of it. In Joshua chapter 6, which we covered last week, we had the battle of Jericho, and we see people attentive, obedient. They're shining in greatness, doing exactly what God has asked them to do, commanded them to do, and there's success because of it. As soon as you get through chapter 6, you open, as you just did, to Joshua chapter 7, and we see greed presumption, and lying. 
The contrast of it, right, 6 to 7, what's happening in 6 and then what's happening in 7, the contrast of it is so in your face, right? When you read the storyline, it's obvious that the author wants to remind you that the through line of the Bible is a story of God addressing man's propensity towards the S word. You know the word I'm talking about, right? Sin. (laughs) Sin. Yeah. Sin. It's the Bible's preferred word for what is basically disordered love, according to the philosopher and theologian Augustine. In other words, it's, it's, sin is man's compulsion to look for the right things in all the wrong places. You know, connection, security, control. You want these things. There's nothing wrong with you wanting them. You just look for them in the wrong place. And you exercise trying to get it in the wrong way. At its core, sin, it's this human drive towards control, fear, and distrust, which is to say it's the human being's dislike in our being a human being. You understand? That's what sin is. It's you trying to somehow shed your humanity. I think we miss that all the time. And if you're thinking, where does he get that? Well, he get it in the very beginning, at the very beginning of the storyline in Genesis. That's the idea that Adam and Eve... And It's the idea of, I I, I think, being a human being with limitations and um, not knowing everything, not having control of everything. I I, I need more control. I need more ability. I need more power. How about I do this instead? You know, things go terribly wrong. And the same thing is actually, that's the same picture that we see in Achan. I don't know why he does what he does. We didn't read the rest of the story, but he takes silver, he takes gold, he takes a a shiny robe. It's like, what were you? Were you trying to impress your friends? You know, what's this about? And since he's, yeah, he's trying to control his image. He's trying to do something, trying to secure up a life that he wants. Sin is far deeper and more complex than a list of naughty deeds that God prescribed. I think that often gets missed in us people. It's more like a compulsive way of living that deviates uh, from how we were originally designed, and that deviation doesn't just hurt God, the designer, it causes deterioration and destruction in our own lives. It's kind of like when I set up a board game for my kids to play, with, for all of us to play, and then almost immediately into the process of the board game, they end up in this vicious fight, right? And it just ruins the whole game. The loss is more than just a bunch of rules that didn't get followed. The loss is now that there's tears, there's timeouts, and there's a lot of conversation about what really matters. See? The loss is that no one actually had fun. It's deeper than just that you didn't follow the rules. That's sin. So what I want to do this morning, what I want to try to pull out from what we see in Joshua 7 and the rest of the Bible really is just say, to just ask this question, what in the world can we do about it? The S word. What can we do about sin? What should we, if anything, can we do about sin? Well, here's the, kind of just the main idea that I want you to reflect on this morning, and that's this. 
sin, I think we need to normalize it, but never minimize it. Normalize it, but never minimize it. And I think the two of these things are so critical, holding them together at the same time. You see, faith isn't fueled by kind of a a linear path of success, nor is faith fueled by shame. I really feel quite strongly that faith is built on keeping a normalized but heightened sensitivity around sin. Because it's, if you, it's, you gotta pay attention to how we think and talk about sin, if we talk about it at all. For instance, um, in July, we drove up to Michigan, northern Michigan, me and my family, and on the way, we made it, you know, once we made it into Michigan, we still had quite a few hours driving up to the top end of the state. And along the way, my youngest is sitting in her car seat in the back, and she keeps, she's, she obviously hasn't grasped the idea of, like, invisible lines and territories that mark states. And so she's got this, I don't know what she's got going on in her head, but she's got this idea in her head, like, that Michigan is like a hotel or something. So along the, the drive, she keeps saying, Dad, when, when are we going to see Michigan? Point it out. And I'm repeating, repeatedly saying, look out the window. <laughs> right? What do you mean, Dad? You're in Michigan. It's all around you. This is Michigan. Dad, where's Michigan, you know? Just like, oh, it's an eight-hour drive. Over and over, right? Sin, listen, sin is like that. It's all around you. It's happening right now. It's not like out there. It's right here. It's in me. It's in you. It's... It's all around us. But the thing about it is, is sometimes it can become this thing where we lose our ability to talk about it. Like we don't know how to like describe it or, and point it out. And then what do we do if that happens? What becomes of us when that happens? I'll give you an example. It, the author, Julia Shears, wrote a fascinating piece in New York Times, I think in 2015, I think is when it was. She describes kind of sitting at this restaurant with her nine-year-old daughter. And her nine-year-old daughter looks out and sees like some temperance workers holding up signs that say, gin is sin. I, I think gin is sin, but anyway. Um, gin is sin, gin is sin. And... Um, her daughter looks at her and says, Mom, what's sin? Because the conversation had never happened. And so she um, describes like immediately freezing up, kind of thinking about, oh, right? Like, what, how do I, do I talk about the S word? <laughs> Should I? How do I do it? Um, and she begins to realize in that moment, due to a traumatic childhood and what she described as a fundamentalist so-called Christian home, she didn't exactly know how to teach 
or if she should teach the word sin to her daughter. This is, this is what she writes here. Quote, sin, that tiny word still makes me cringe with residual fear. Fear of being judged unworthy, fear of the eternal torture of hell, fear of my father's belt. Actions, words, even thoughts weren't safe from scrutiny. The list of sinful offenses seemed infinite. Listening to secular music or watching secular television, saying gosh or darn or geez, questioning authorities, envying a friend's rainbow array of Izod shirts. God was a megaphone bleeding in my head. You're bad, you're bad, you're bad. I had reoccurring nightmares of malevolent winds tornadoing through my bedroom. A metaphor I now realize for an invisible and vindictive God. Oof. At the end of the piece, she just, her last line, she just notes that what she decided was an explanation of sin could wait. I understand. I'm not making fun of Julia Shears. I actually understand and sympathize with what she's talking about. I sympathize with what trips her up. Sin doesn't just sound archaic to some. Um, it can feel like a tool that religious tyrants have used to modify and curb behavior through shame. That's often the feeling that comes along when the word sin comes up. Here's the problem, though. The, the problem, I think, is just by removing the word from our lexicon, while it sounds more palatable and modern, doesn't do anything in removing its ugly presence from the dinner table. It's still there, right? You can get cancer and decide you don't want to say the word because it's uncomfortable to say it out loud. It doesn't change the fact that it's doing things to your body. It's still there. And it doesn't eliminate shame either. I would say instead now, by not having it a normal part of our conversation, instead now when a person does screw up royally sometimes and the shame that comes on inevitably, now they look for a way to compensate, which always leaves us feeling more shame because I've got nowhere to say things like, man, I've screwed up and I need help. But we don't talk about that and I don't know if you do, so what are we supposed to do now? I believe, ironically, avoiding the idea of sin can leave us baffled and isolated when we do something incredibly hurtful or inappropriate. You know what I mean? It's like, it would be like if you went to the doctor for something that's ailing you terribly, and, you know, you go in, something's off, you explain the symptoms, and after some tests, he or she looks at you and says, ah, oh, I'm really sorry, but there's no explanation for this. I guess you're just really sick, uniquely sick. Good luck. How would that feel? I would say you're looking for some understanding. You're looking for the condition. You're looking for some word to wrap around. Why do you do the things that you don't want to do? Why do I keep doing this thing that I get in trouble for? Why do I keep doing this thing that hurts people 
or gets me in trouble? What's wrong with me? And is it only me? <laughs> Am I the only one that does this? Because no one else talks about it. Look, the, the thing about it is, is Achan is written in here, into the story, in bold detail, in your face and in my face, not to serve as a foolish stranger to you. You know, like, what did you feel when you're ready? I think Achan is not meant to serve as a foolish stranger. He's meant to be a mirror to your shared experience. And if you're thinking, I I never stole devoted things. (laughs) You've done things. Of course you have. I've done things. I've done things right on the backs of great success and victory and then run right back into another failure before. I've been the victim, or the culprit, I should say, of control issues, trust issues, fear issues. You know, notice the author gives us Achan's ancestry line right in the very first verse. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, and then he gives them this whole thing for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah. Some took of the devoted things. Why is he doing this? When you read these genealogies, you know, you're like, what? I don't care, right? Why give his ancestry? Well, unless, there's no reason unless the author is trying to highlight the fact that Achan is a consummate insider. He's from the tribe of Judah. King David comes from the line of Judah. Who else comes from the line of Judah? Jesus comes from the line of Judah. A big part of the author's intent here is to remind us that sin is everywhere and in everyone. Look out the window. It's like, it's so funny how Joshua, you know, I'm not beating up on Joshua the elders. How are they to know that he stole things? But when they have this failure, this battle, where they're very presumptuous, you know, about, oh, it's no big deal. God's not even mentioned. Did you notice that? God's not even mentioned. We'll just go up there and wipe these guys out. No big deal. And then when it goes terribly wrong, and Joshua's like, falls on his face, why us? What's going on? And we don't like the way God talks. Get up. Get up. But I think that this is the author's way of showing us that, you know, what's funny about Christians is, is we, we start to think over time through experience and, you know, knowledge, education, whatever, that all of a sudden we're bulletproof. Like that somehow we're not vulnerable to still screwing up. It never occurs to Joshua and the other elders that maybe sin actually is inside, not just over there, but actually in us. That's because sin is far better at diversity and equity than you and I ever will be. According to Romans 3, sin seems to be distributed to absolutely everyone. No questions or exemptions. So the idea that your education level, your experience, pedigree, your age, or your spiritual exercises that you are so disciplined in, the idea that somehow those have immunized you from sin's pattern is so unsubstantiated that it's best that we begin normalizing it as part of our everyday lives. 
You see here, there is a danger in naming something all the time. I agree with that. Like going around like with a hammer, like, where's sin? I want to find it. And every interaction is like a sin hunt. No, 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 I, I think there's a danger in that. But there is an equal or more danger in making it a foreign concept to your family, to your personal life, to your friendships, to your workplace. I hate awkward, I, I really, really hate awkward gatherings as much, if not more, than the average person. Actually, I just wonder sometimes if I have an extremely neurotic, sensitive radar to something that looks out of place or inappropriate. Like, I just cannot concentrate when something's going, like when there's an elephant in the room. I attribute it to like 10,000 hours as a puke kid. Yeah, some of you laugh because you know what I'm talking about. I grew up as a pew kid, you know, a pew, a long wooden bench in church services that you sat next to a bunch of strangers that made weird noises and did weird things. And so when you grow up that way, you know, countless hours in worship gatherings, prayer meetings, sharing the, these wooden benches with people, it teaches you a, a thing or two about playing it cool. And nothing to me is worse than a friend gathering or a family gathering when there is an, a real and obvious issue at hand that is being danced around by everybody. And no one is willing to name it. Take this week. I went to a coffee shop, which is normal for me. Well, at least one day a week, usually I try to get out and clear my head, try to get some thoughts. And so one of the best ways to get thoughts is just go stare at strangers. So I, I'm sitting at this coffee shop this week, and seven or eight feet to my side is this younger couple than me sitting, what, going through what is clearly and obviously like a breakup. Yeah. And so she has got her face like plastered to the window looking out, and he is, you know, there's not a whole lot of air between them. And he is pleading his case, pleading his case. This goes on for like an hour. I know I watched every minute of it. Because <laughs> like I said, I have sin. So I mean, I, you know, so I'm sitting there. I was going to write. And then I'm like, no, 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 this is too good. So instead, I was like this. <laughs> and this guy, I mean, he just progressively got stranger and stranger. And um, he's, you know, he's, he's doing these weird gestures. He's wrapping his arms around her. He's nuzzling. It's cringy. And everybody, you know, everybody's walking in, getting their coffees and leaving and you know, everybody's just, just kind of looking at them like, what is going on? And it's to no avail. It's not, it's not, he's not making any progress whatsoever. I mean, I could, I could not concentrate because of this poor guy's attempts at PDA. And I kept thinking in my head, I kept thinking, hey, man, dude, she's over it. She's over you. Like, this is done. Move on. And this is awkward. This is really, really awkward. And you're, you're behaving very inappropriately in a, in a, in a public place. Um, 
And I kept thinking, this is not normal. But that's the thing. It is. Because when you're in love with someone and it goes south, you do, you do things. You get crazy because you're human and we do crazy things. And actually, those crazy things for us as broken people is normal. And, you know, I would like to think that if I was that guy, <laughs> I had somewhere to go to talk about it and someone didn't say, hey, man, that's not normal. I would hope I could go somewhere and talk to someone where they would say, yeah, man, that's, that, that's normal. Getting dumped is really hard. It's really, really difficult. And I know you feel ashamed right now. And I know you feel humiliated. But it's a, it's a common experience. That's what I'm getting at. Normalizing it so that we understand, yeah, this is, a, this is a me problem, this is a you problem, this is a we problem. Can we talk about it? When sin slips into the categorical topic that's only suited to new converts or religious fanatics only, we're in grave danger. Because not talking about it, like I said earlier, surely isn't eliminating its presence, but now its presence, sin, gets projected onto something else. And I see this. I see Christians do this all the time. Now sin, gets, sin isn't a thing anymore. Now it's an Enneagram number. It's a disc profile. It's your unfortunate Myers-Briggs ac acronym. It's not sin. It's something else, you know, to lower the temperature around it. Or worse yet, now because we don't talk about it, it just actually gets projected onto someone else. It's their fault. And when we do this, it leads to no change, more self-loathing, actually, more loneliness, and no real intimacy with people. That's the sad, tragic irony that I think God has known from day one. If sin isn't normalized as part of my daily fight and existence as a person, and in my family, and in my workplace, and within my friendships, and within my church, then it leads us to feeling deeply alienated and crippled and addressing it when it rears its ugly head. But here's the thing. Norm <laughs> Normalizing it is not the same thing as minimizing it. Right? Like, I mentioned this earlier, but it, it, it's like cancer, right? Like, cancer is a sad, unfortunate reality that is normal to the human condition. I mean, we wish it wasn't. I know it's abnormal cell growth, but it is a normal part of our broken reality. And you shouldn't be ashamed or humiliated in bringing it up at the dinner table or at a gathering with some friends or at your church and within your community group. And you, you shouldn't be, it should be normal for you to be able to say, this is what's going on in me. But we, how dare, we would never minimize it. Right? We would never say something like, but you don't need to address it. 
Why? If it goes unchecked, it can do real damage. Sin is like that. You know, I'm curious, like, I would love for this to be more dialogical for a little while, to just to, to say, hey, well, what was your experience reading the story? Because if you're anything like me, I read chapter 7, if, especially if you read its entirety, and it's just downright disturbing, right? Like, God seems to have no tolerance, none, for this infraction. I mean, look at the language again in verse 10 through 12. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I've commanded them. And they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and they have lied and they've put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. And I'm not even mentioning, I haven't even mentioned the end of the story, the sentence and the execution that comes upon Achan and his family. Truthfully, as modern New Testament people, we just struggle reading this, don't we? I mean, it's like, what do we do? But the disturbing tragedy is the point. It's meant, it's meant, it's meant to wake us up and call us, call us out. It's meant to conjure up this way of understanding what sin does. It's like I said, cancer, it's like cancer. It shouldn't be taboo to talk about it. But it, we have to remember how damaging it can be so that we deal with it. And the story there highlights, Aiken. what he does is it highlights really quite succinctly three things that sin does to me, to you, to us. Three things. One, it, sin separates. Sin destroys. And, and sin damages community. One, it, it separates. If you look at 12, he says, I, God says, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Right? From the beginning in Genesis, you see this. We, we see that sin is this breach of trust that separates us from God. And God wants you free. Please know that. God wants you free. And actually, the tragic irony is that it's that sin enslaves you. Sin is what puts you in a position where you are enslaved to your own selfish desires. And God wants you to be free so that you can love, not out of compulsion, like just free to love him, to love others. And he wants you to love other people for the sake of their dignity, not for what they can give you. And tragically, that's what sin takes us away from. It makes us slaves to ourselves and whatever is eating at us. But sin doesn't just separate, it also destroys, right? Like it, it destroys and works against you. Verse 15, he says, he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. Now the language there is very particular and careful and it's hearkening back to chapter six. The tragic, ironic lesson of this scene is that Jericho, if you read chapter six, Jericho, when it crumbled and everything, when everything was done, it was meant to be burned because of what it represented. It represented the most awful things that you can imagine. And so it was, it was, it was called to be burned. And so what, he, what it's saying is now Achan is meant to burn because of his unchecked craving. Now I know that that's disturbing, but think about what it's saying. There's always this deceptive, sinister pattern to sin. In other words, we're enticed by what it might give us. Like, we're enticed by 
this might give me more connection. This might, this might give me more intimacy. This might give me more security. This might give me more sense of control. And so we go after it and we crave these things. Right? Even, even in moments when we know it's wrong, we, we, we just crave them. And the, and the sad reality is, is it, it does the opposite to us over time. Maybe not overnight, but eventually it does the opposite to us. You saw this dynamic play out, didn't you, in grade school? Who was it that didn't have friends? I can tell you. It was the person that demanded they had friends and forced themselves on people. They craved it so bad, people pushed them away. You see this in romantic relationships. Someone craves connection so badly they smother and they act paranoid, which then just erodes the intimacy and the trust that they longed for. You see this with money, right? How much is enough? Well, just, just a little bit more so I can have security and relaxation, which sadly, and I've lived long enough to see this, never comes and they get buried clutching their pearls. The relaxation, the rest, the security actually never comes upon them because it's always just a little bit more. What I'm trying to say is we must see this, that sin is not as simple as rule-breaking. Sin is this deviation, this way of living in which we essentially go out and hit the self-destruct button. The thing that I'm craving so badly just explodes my whole life. This is why God hates it so much. It's not just a naughty list. God is looking at all of us and saying, you will self-destruct if you don't see how bad this is. And lastly, it damages communities. And at the end, Joshua looks at Achan in verse 25, and he just asks him this question, why did you bring this trouble upon us? Why did you do this to our community? I know the corporate mindset of the Bible trips us up as like modern readers because we look at Achan and we say, wait, it, that's his sin. That's a private issue. It shouldn't affect all of Israel. Why is all of Israel indicted on this, in this situation? But look, you have to check that Western individualistic mindset when you read the Bible. The Bible's telling you stories from a corporate mindset. Through one man came sin. Through one man came righteousness. That's the through line of the Bible. But look, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 5 that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And we know instinctively this is true. In other words, from the Bible's perspective, sin is never a private enterprise. Its actions and consequences always affect someone else. It has ripple effects. You can't sin thinking that you, it's not going to affect anybody else. It absolutely always will, even if it's only in your mind. It's going to play out in your relationships. So healthy churches, healthy families, healthy friendships, they're never going to eliminate sin. It's going to show up. But if it's normalized as an us problem, we actually have a way of talking about it and building deeper trust and learning how to change with each other. So let me wrap it up this way for you. I said in the beginning that the Bible is particularly concerned with showing that we are not good at curbing our behavior towards good. 
sure, we have plenty of bright moments. You have bright, shining moments. We all do. But the goodness, the purity that we probably all crave feels beyond our reach. And that's because it is. It is. And it's why God stored up a secret plan from the beginning. Sadly, Achan suffers a tragic end because of his lack of trust and greed. And it is hard to think about and read about and even reflect upon. But notice this. After his execution, they heap a pile of stones over him where he is eliminated. They, they pile up this heap of stones and they name it the Valley of Accor. Accor means trouble. Joshua 7, 26 talks about this. And it was meant to remind them. It was meant to be like, you know, this monument. It was meant to, so when they look at that big, big, massive heap of stones, they're meant to look at that and say, oh, that, that's a reminder that sin will destroy you. It will. But the beauty is that this doesn't have to be your ending, nor your fate. When we know of our sin and we confess it, because later, this is so wonderful, God would say this about his secret plan. And this is in the book of Hosea, chapter 2, verse 14 through 15. So much later, God's speaking through his prophet. Here's what he says. And he's talking to his people, us. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her, that's all of us, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her and there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. So you, you, you got to think about this for a second. What is he saying to you? <laughs> God is saying what used to be a reminder of your troubling history now becomes an entrance, something you can walk through, entering into life and freedom. What he's saying is, is I'll make it so that when you look and when you talk about your sin, you're not reminded of a sad story, but you are reminded of sacrificial love. You are reminded of how much I love you. That's fascinating. He uses the very thing that we think of and we, we, we look at and we consider, and it brings all this sadness upon us. And he says, no, I want you to be able to look at that and then remember something that gives you great hope. Much later, Paul would say it like this in Romans 5, 6 and 7. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one, might, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The timing of events is critical to your relationship to sin and, God, and holiness and godliness. Christ didn't die once sin was eliminated. Christ died precisely because and we are sinful and we could not eradicate it. And so therefore, in light of Christ, now when you and I talk about sin, while it can be humiliating and embarrassing to open up and talk about and process some of the things that we do. Now, it's an entrance. 
It's a way of gaining hope. It's a way of coming back in contact with love. It's an entrance to remembering this is how much God loves me, that while I was a sinner, God died for me. While I was screwing up, God came and rescued me. It's always a doorway to change. That's the beauty. That's the irony. We think that by avoiding it, not talking about it, rushing to the good, all, only thinking about this, that's why no change happens. It's when we talk about the bad. This, I've said it before, but I'll keep saying it because I think it's a watershed thought for your Christian journey. The way you grow in holiness is precisely by talking about your unholiness. That's the gospel. You don't get the good by skipping the bad. The good becomes wonderful by addressing and looking at the bad. That's the door of hope he's talking about. That when we, when we think about him, the more we are able to comfortably and normalize the fact that, man, I am sinful, I'm still sinful, that is the process in which I grow towards holiness. Because now I'm realizing, yeah, I can't do this. Thanks be to God that he sent his son. When I care and talk about my ungodliness, I am getting back in touch with Christ's work for me. So please see this morning, if nothing else, that getting the gospel in you is never skipping the bad, the ugly, to enjoy the good. Actually, God's love is made more beautiful, not less, but more beautiful in light of our inadequacies that we all share it. And so today, I would just ask you to hear these words as I go over communion. As you sit here and you give it a few moments before you think about coming forward to these stations, I would just ask you to simply do some simple examination. God asks of these people many, 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 many years ago to consecrate themselves. We don't exactly know what consecration they were given to, but almost every scholar agrees that it was a process of examination at minimum. In other words, to sit still, be quiet, and reflect upon what's going on in my life. And have I been honest? And do I have things in my life that need to be addressed? And I, I just don't feel like I can in my own power. Well, you're in good company. This is where we all are. And so maybe you're in this morning and you just need to give yourself over to Christ for the first time. And I pray that you do that. And if you need help, come see us and we'll pray with you and help you through that. Maybe you just need to realize that confession of sin is lacking in your life. And you just need to find a person or a, a, a good place to start exercising that. Maybe you just need to realize that your sin is just not the end, but an entrance into deeper gratitude. And you're not alone. I don't know. But I pray that as I go over this, that you would just think about those things and examine yourself and if Christ is Lord to you, if Christ is, 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 is truly someone that you need to rescue you from sin, you're invited to come forward to this station or to this station, taking a piece of the bread and dipping it in the wine or the juice. This bread represents his body that is broken for you. And this cup of wine points to and represents his blood that is shed for us. This is the work that he did on our behalf while we were sinners while we were sinners. I pray that that changes all of us in some way this morning. Let us pray.
Father, sin is, is, is a part of my life. It is a part of all of our lives. I wish, I, I know these brothers and sisters wish that it was not so, but this is the condition that we're in. And all we can really do if we're honest is come to you and say, your life for ours. Thank you that you didn't leave us in this. But you made a way and you made a path. So God, I ask that you, you help us by your spirit become a people that remember that to confess while it's scary sometimes, to confess our sin before you is our entry point to hope, to life, and to freedom in you. Because you didn't leave us orphaned, but you came for us. Whoever is struggling this morning, I pray by your spirit that you lift them up and that you bring them closer to you. We love you and we give you thanks this morning. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org.